0: President Jair Bolsonaro started off his participation at the G20 summit in Osaka in the worst possible fashion. He had to deal with a scandal when an air force officer flying with the presidential convoy was caught carrying 39 kilos, yes, kilos of cocaine in his hand luggage. A member of the Brazilian president's G20 entourage has been arrested for suspected drug trafficking following a cocaine bust. And he was also facing scrutiny from world leaders for his lack of environmental concerns. I mean, between January and June 2019, the Brazilian Amazon has lost the equivalent of 320,000 football fields to deforestation. German Chancellor Angela Merkel said she wanted a straight talk with the Brazilian president. Um, dramatic, in Brazil, um, then, all of a sudden, the narrative changed, thanks to something happening thousands of miles away from Osaka. South American and European negotiators agreed in principle to a deal between the European Union and Mercosur, which will form the largest free trade zone in the world. This week, we're talking about the implications of the deal for Brazil. My name is Gustavo Ribeiro, Editor-in-Chief of the Brazilian Report, and this is Explaining Brazil. Mônica de Boli is the Director of Latin American Studies at Johns Hopkins University, Thanks for being back to our podcast.
1: Thank you for having me once again um, on the podcast.
0: It took decades to get pen to paper on this deal. What pushed it over the hump?
1: This has been a a deal that's been 20 years in the making. So it's kind of difficult to attribute it to the, the success of it to any single administration. Every administration along the way, I think, has had you know, its um, successes and failures and inputs and whatnot, Um, the Temer administration was really trying to push this deal very strongly over the finish line. But conditions were just not right um, for that to happen at the time. And right now conditions were. And by that, I mean that the geopolitical context is one where the EU is very clearly concerned about um, having as many free trade agreements with as many countries as we can. Um, if we just look at in in regions, if we just look at the number of trade agreements that they have negotiated since 2017, they've done one with Canada, they've done one with Mexico, they've done one with, um, now they've done the Mercosur one. They're trying to finalize one with Vietnam, which is, which is at the very end of, of getting finalized. So, they've They've been going that route essentially as a as a sort of response to u s. protectionism and as a way to ensure that they have proper access to markets and can can adequately diversify away from the u s market given um, Trump's protectionism and given the threats that Trump has made against the EU.
0: Professor, this deal will have 17 chapters, but so far we've only been shown a short summary of 17 pages. Knowing that this is a document containing only the broad strokes of the deal, what were your first impressions? Is it a balanced deal?
1: It is not unusual to announce the conclusion of, you know, the, the broad negotiations or the, the, you know, the big picture negotiations on the trade deal of this magnitude, and then not release the final text immediately, because the final text really can only be final after the agreement and all of its chapters undergo the necessary um, legal and technical revisions that all countries will then undertake individually. So, the final agreement we will only see after that process has been concluded. The only thing that ha- does have a little bit more detail is the part about market access. Um, and here's another, another um, thing that needs to be known about trade deals. Most people tend to look at trade deals and think that you know they're all about market access trade agreements are actually much more than that. Market access is only one part of the story. Then the other part of the story has to do with all sorts of regulations and other issues um, that affect trade and affect investment. And from that, I think what has the, the at least my first reaction from reading it, although a lot of detail is still needed to make a proper assessment, is that there has been a, a, a very significant opening of Access to markets, both on the Mercosur as well as on the EU side, for industrial goods. So, for on the EU side, they have basically, they're basically allowing um, the equivalent of 100% of tariff lines of industrial products to now come from the Mercosur into the EU. Um, From the Mercosur side, what's happening is that they're now allowing something like. Ninety plus percent of tariff lines of products from the eu industrialized products that come into the Mercosur, and then there's a side agreement or a side deal on passenger vehicles, which hasn't been detailed in this document. I mean the details that are there are very broad brush and, and difficult to analyze on ag- it, so on, on the industrial side, it looks as if you know there's been significant market market opening on both sides, and it's it's pretty much level it's pretty much level on, on both sides.
0: And what about agricultural goods?
1: When you look at the agricultural part, however, um, although there is market opening, clearly, otherwise, you know, why make a deal? Um, there is let it, it is less level. So the the impression that I had reading it is that the agreement seems to favor the EU more, or in other words, keep EU agricultural markets more protected while, you know, the Mercosur Mercosur countries seem to have made a lot more concessions to the EU on access to their agricultural markets. And on top of that, on agriculture specifically, um, what the EU has been doing, and the, the, the Mercosur deal has not been an exception, with all of these other trade deals that they've been negotiating that I mentioned earlier, they're making countries accept their sanitary and phytosanitary standards. Um, the same is true now for Mercosur, and this is a non-negotiable part of the deal. So Mercosur countries will have to accept the sanitary and phytosanitary restrictions that the EU applies to agricultural products. And that obviously, you know, can mean that in some cases you might still see, you know, Barriers being erected if the EU feels that or thinks that you know there there are problems with some um, agricultural exports coming in from Mercosur and things like that.
0: Brazilian beef has been blocked by the European Union due to sanitary issues, right?
1: Yes, we have. So they have. So basically, the EU has maintained those measures um, in place for for um, products like beef and and you know other types of meat. Um, so that, you know, in the future, if problems arise in Mercosur that, you know, somehow um, do not meet the measures or the requirements, the, the sanitary and phytosanitary measures that the EU has, then you can see a clo- that there would be a closing up of, of those markets for, for Mercosur countries, as we have seen in the past.
0: Both European agriculture and Brazilian industry are heavily dependent on aids such as subsidies, tax breaks, how does the deal approach that?
1: Um it does mention there's a part of the the document that mentions subsidies explicitly and it basically is it's very vague it basically says that you know the 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 deal now does not contemplate any subsidies being applied um, further in 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 any product area but it is hard to gauge from that very vague statement it's actually a paragraph From that very vague paragraph, what in effect this this entails. There are what we in trade call snapback clauses, which allow countries to quote unquote retaliate or or apply remedies, trade remedies, whenever there are situations that don't meet the standards that are in the deal. And there are things like that pertaining to subsidies, but we don't know exactly how that's been worded in the agreement because that's not clear from the 17 page text.
0: Mercosur manufactured goods will no longer be taxed when shipped to Europe, but but is Mercosur competitive in that respect?
1: So two important points here. First of all, the, the the broad tariff reduction doesn't happen immediately. It happens over a period of ten years. That's the comp, contemplated um, time period to reduce tariffs on all the goods that are seeing their tariffs reduced, and that's the case for the EU as well as for Mercosur. Um, on your question specifically, the so there's so basically the there's there there's a much there's a huge market now for. Um, you know, Mercosur manufacturers to explore. But obviously, um, what this means is that, you know, those manufacturers have to be competitive because there are many countries that export manufactured products into the EU. Um, the EU itself, its own companies are very competitive internationally. So, you know, Mercosur countries would now be competing hand on hand with these, with these European companies. That can have two effects. Um, it can have a very positive effect in sort of when you, when you have this, this type of market access in a situation like this, it can force companies, um, that have been operating in a very protected environment it can force companies to upgrade and modernize, you know, their production structures, their practices. It can even, you know, push them to integrate supply chains um, in a better way than they have been in the past. I mean, certainly in the case of Brazil and Argentina, you know, these are two countries where the industrial sec- their industrial sectors res- respectively have not been um, involved in or have not been part of supply chains anywhere. So there is now an incentive for that to happen. But on the other hand, because these are companies that have operated in such a protected environment for such a long period of time, um, there's a challenge for these companies to be able to really reap the benefits of having this type of market access. So to be seen exactly what the end effects are going to be. I tend to think that, you know, trade openness in the longer term always ends up having I admit, this is not just me this is empirical research shows this it does end up having <clears throat> broad benefits for for all of the economies involved which is not not to say that you can't have you know some some sectors of the economy or some specific terms that actually lose out from trade we know that happens too but by and large the gains are bigger than the than the drawbacks and that's an important point to keep in mind but by and large i think the having a market where mercosur companies are actually incentivized to meet the standards that the these the the other companies their competitor companies have in order to compete themselves is It should be a positive thing and should should help these companies
0: upgrade. Do you think it's fair to expect a negative hit in the short term? I mean, left-wing parties and trade unionists are saying the deal could destroy Brazil's industry.
1: Well, that depends on the degree to which Mercosur countries will want to enter more aggressively into the EU market, right? Because when it comes to the opposite effect, so... EU companies entering Mercosur market, the fact of the matter is that a lot of EU companies have already been, or European companies, have already been present in Mercosur markets for a very long time. So, you know, if you just think of the car makers, for example, you've got, you know, the entire car industry within Mercosur is essentially either European or American. So you've got all of these car makers in these markets already. Um, in other areas like cement production or, you know, there are others that come to mind, you also have European companies already in Brazil or in Argentina, you know, producing heavily to sell into those markets specifically. So the fact is that at least on the manufacturing front, even though we didn't have a free trade agreement in place with the EU, what the EU did do was set up companies in in our markets in order to, you know, compete locally with domestic firms. So the competition is already happening and has already happened to a very, very large extent in local markets.
0: About a quarter of our listeners are located in Brazil, so I bet this question will strike a chord for them. How long will they have to wait before finding affordable and good wine from Burgundy in Brazilian supermarkets?
1: Well, I think that's going to take a while yet. I mean there's there is a a section of the 17-page summary that talks specifically about wine and cheese. Um so you know, those barriers are being are going to be reduced and we should see the prices of those things coming down um in the Brazilian market, in the Argentinian market and all of that. But um, you know, this this will happen when the deal actually comes into effect, right? And it might it will still take a while for the deal to come into effect, not just because of the legal and technical um, analyses and evaluations that have to be done, which I mentioned before. But also because this deal needs to be ratified by the different parliaments and in, 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 you know in every single country. So that's that's another um that's another tall order right there. I mean today we've had we've seen, you know, today and recently we have seen the French authorities and a number of um, members of, of you know, a number of French farmers and others um Expressing concerns about the about the EU-Mercosur deal, um, there's a chapter in the deal that that deals that that speaks specifically of um, sustainable um, goals and environmental sustainability. Um, those could be used, you know, those those um, measures that are in the agreement, which we don't know the detail of they could be used to say oh you know certain countries are not doing enough or are doing badly on the environmental front and we can't ratify the deal i mean there there's still a lot of stumbling bo- but potential stumbling blocks um in the next oh, god knows how long it could take quite a quite a long time um towards ratification of of all the different you know the different the different parliaments so this is this is not any this is not close to being finished anytime
0: soon after the break we will talk about brazil's place in world trade we'll be right back hey i'm ewan marshall editor of the brazilian report I want to invite you to subscribe to our brand new sports newsletter. Every Monday morning, we talk about all things Brazilian sports, and it's not only about football, we also cover other sports, as well as plenty of behind the scenes political stuff and cultural aspects, and also the business side of sports. Our sports newsletter goes beyond the scores, and it's free, so just go to brazilian.report and you can get it in your inbox. By any measure, Brazil is one of the most insular economies in the world. For example, when we look at how much exports and imports represent in percentage of GDP. Compared to other G20 countries, Brazil ranks dead last in imports, only 12% of its GDP, and second last to Argentina when it comes to exports, with 13%. So, Professor Mónica de Bolle How did we create this sort of self imposed embargo?
1: Well, it's the reflection of many, many years of having an import substitution mentality, right? I mean the both Brazil and it's it's by it's not by chance that it's both Brazil and Argentina in that bucket because both of those economies have been focused on import substitution since way back when. <laughs> we've been doing import substitution in one way or or another since the nineteen thirties. So, you know, and we and our mentality hasn't really changed. It's gonna have to start changing now. I think that um that that explains the numbers that you've just cited to me, on the one hand. It also explains the extreme concerns that you see voiced by parts of the Of, of, of the Brazilian um, establishment or some companies or not even companies but you know economists and and others that still still do have whether they know it consciously or not, this kind of import substitution mentality that really has to go because import substitution did not work when we compare you know the the, the stories of Argentina, Brazil, and then the Asian countries. What we did differently from the Asian countries is that we stuck to import substitution and import substitution only, whereas the Asian economies like the Koreas of the world and the Taiwans of the world and so on, what they did is, yes, they protected their industries, but at some point, they realized that opening up to trade was more important than protecting their industries and When they felt that it was time, they opened up their economy substantially and allowed their um, their companies to be exposed to a competitive environment that made those companies naturally grow modernize and integrate themselves into into the global economy so a lot of the difference in the success stories of you know korea taiwan and argentina and brazil and i say those i cite those countries specifically because those pushes those development pushes happen more or less around the same time they were all post-war post-second world war pushes towards development Um, Where you saw more import substitution industrialization, Argentina and Brazil, these failed. They did not succeed.
0: As you say, empirical evidence does show that opening up one's economy is beneficial to a country. And we only need to look at our past history. In the 1990s, Brazil underwent a series of liberalizing reforms that helped curb poverty rates, employment, etc.
1: Yeah, so in the early 90s, we had this push for trade liberalization that was um, very unilateral. I mean, the, the, the liberalization that happened in the 90s was not was not about trade deals. So It was not about making trade deals with other countries. It was about just unilaterally reducing tariffs, Brazil used to have extremely high tariffs on a number of products. And what it did back then was basically reduce dramatically and in some cases, you know, really very dramatically a lot of these tariffs. And it was a very turbulent time for Brazil. We had a hyperinflation. We had, um, an economy that was completely disorganized. But in spite of all that, the, 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 the effects of um, the reduction in tariffs and the opening up, and the trade liberalization efforts that were were put in place um, certainly helped the economy navigate those extremely turbulent times so you know there, there, and there's and there 's one additional thing here that we haven 't mentioned that I think we should bring into this conversation at least when it when we talk about tariffs. When we talk about tariffs and when we talk about opening up to trade, we generally tend to focus a lot on the exporting capacity of the country. So we tend to think of things like, oh, well, you know, Brazilian exporters, are they going to have greater access to other markets and things like that? But trade is really about not just exports, but a lot about imports. And it's through imports, actually, that you're better able to export quality goods and higher value added goods. Um, so the, the, the export and import side go hand in hand. So just to make a point here, usually big exporting companies are also very big importers. They import a lot to export a lot.
0: To illustrate Brazil's dependence on the U.S., economists used to say that when Washington sneezed, Brasilia would catch pneumonia. Today, as China emerges as Brazil's top trading partner, can we change that phrase replacing D.C. for Beijing?
1: I think it applies to both. (laughs) I don't think we have um, rid ourselves from catching, you know, very strong, um, potentially life-threatening diseases when anything happens to the U.S., just as we are at risk from any slowdowns in China. So, I think we we are now pretty much exposed to both, kind of equally, actually.
0: And would diversifying trading partners through trade deals be a way out of this over-dependence on just two countries, even if it's the world's top two economies?
1: It certainly helps. It certainly helps.
0: Thank you, Professor, for once again making yourself available for the Explaining Brazil podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me again.
0: This podcast was written and prepared by me, Gustavo Ribeiro, Ewan Marshall edits the final script. If you like this show, please rate us on your podcasting platform. That's really important for us, and it will only take a second. And go check our website. You can enjoy our exclusive content on Brazilian politics, economics, and society. And we let you try everything out for seven days. That goes for articles, newsletters, you name it. Just go to brazilian.report.com slash subscribe that's all for now see you next week